Hi everyone, welcome back to Killer Astrology. I'm your host, Laura, and today, November 29th, 2020, we're gearing up for a lunar eclipse in Gemini. This is a full moon eclipse that will be exact around 4.27 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the morning of November 30th, when the moon will be exactly opposite the sun in the sky. Eclipses happen when the orbits of the moon around the Earth and the Earth around the Sun are at a close angle, causing the Moon and the Sun to line up more exactly when they oppose each other. As you may expect, this closeness causes the energy of the lunation to be more intense than usual, since the two luminaries are so close together and playing off each other more intensely. This means that eclipses can be associated with big changes and big energy, sometimes through the course of uncomfortable or unexpected events. There's not much you can do to stop this energy from flowing. It needs to be released. So if something is meant to be uncovered, it will be. Your job is just to get some rest, to go with the flow, and trust that the universe has your back, even if in the moment things seem to be a little bit hard. This theme of trusting the universe is one that a lot of the criminals we cover have some trouble with because it requires the relinquishing of control and lots and lots of change. The subject of this week's episode is no different from the rest, in that regard, at least. Today we're going to witness a true fall from grace. What happens when the head of a prominent French family gets in a little too deep? Let's find out. Our story begins on a sunny spring day on the west coast of France, where the well-to-do population of Nantes are going about their day. The kids are on their way to their fancy private schools, and the parents are working or doing whatever else it is they do in their high-class circles. And the police, the police are searching 55 Robert Schumann Boulevard for the sixth time this week. Number 55 is an idyllic spot, a picturesque old European row home with shutters that open to let in the light and the sounds of the French city life. Only today, the shutters are closed. They've been closed for a week, actually, and on the mailbox is a note stating that the postman should return all letters to sender. It's a bit eerie, to say the least, a vibe that's not helped by the fact that the place is swarming with police, who are about to unearth a shocking secret from under the back terrace. About a week prior to this, on April 13, 2011, police came to the property for the first time. They'd received a call from a neighbor who asked that they come by because the lack of activity in the typically vibrant and energetic home was unsettling. But when police entered the home, they found nothing out of the ordinary. There was no one around, but the rooms were clean and the closet doors were open. It looked like the family who lived there had recently packed for a trip and left, which is consistent with the information their family and friends had recently learned. The patriarch of this household, Javier Dupont de Ligonnès, was a well-respected businessman who traveled all around France for work. He had a number of friends who spoke very highly of him, and a beautiful family that he supported. He himself came from a very prominent family line. He was the son of a nobleman, a count from Versailles. 
His wife, Agnes, was a religious woman who was active in the church community. She was a Catholic school teacher and ran a Bible study group. The couple had four children, Arthur, who was 20, Tomas, who was 18, Anne, who was 16, and Benoit, who was 13. The two eldest sons, Arthur and Tomas, were college students attending a private Catholic school in the area. Anne and Benoit were still in high school. All of the kids were smart and poised for success and had their respective talents. Arthur was personable, Tomas and Benoit were musicians, and Anne modeled in catalogs. Together, the family lived with their two dogs in Nantes and appeared, for the most part, to be very happy and well-liked by the community. With all of their various responsibilities and passions, it seemed strange that the family would just up and leave their home and their lives. But that's what family and friends were told. Between April 9th and April 14th of 2011, multiple family and friends received letters signed by the family that contained a secret that Javier wasn't just a businessman, but a spy who had recently been recruited by the American government to work undercover against drug operations. And the family needed to leave their old life behind to prepare for this new assignment, which came with protection services. No one in the family would be reachable ever again in order to protect their lives on this new mission. Now, while some recipients of this letter didn't think it was that outrageous... Others weren't buying it. Agnes's family swore up and down that she would never leave like this, and it was their insistence that kept police going back to the home again and again. Their first visit was April 13th, when they didn't find anything concerning. When they returned two days later on the 15th, they noticed a number of frames missing photographs, like the family had left and taken these tokens with them. Again, this finding seemed consistent with what they knew. But with pressure from Agnes's family, they returned to the home again on April 18th, April 19th, April 20th, and April 21st. By this point, the public had become aware that the family was missing, and the government was making a statement to the press about the situation. In the middle of that press conference, the police made their discovery. Underneath the terrace of the Ligonese household were two graves containing seven bodies. Three teenagers, one young adult, one middle-aged woman, and two dogs. Their bodies were wrapped in blankets and plastic bags and then taped shut and covered with dirt. Placed next to each body was a Christian figurine or symbol, indicating that the person who buried these bodies had some level of care for their souls. Further investigation revealed that all children had sleeping medication in their system, and every one of them, including their mother, was shot twice in the head with a 22 caliber rifle. This shocking and tragic discovery was compounded by another discovery, or a lack of a discovery, that just couldn't be ignored. There was something missing here. There was someone missing here. There were only five people of this six-person family found in the graves at 55 Schumann Boulevard. Where was Javier? The search for him began as soon as the police noticed he was gone. As he was not presumed dead with the rest of the family, and one of the family cars was missing, police assumed that he was fleeing the scene. He quickly became the prime suspect in the deaths of all his family members. 
And there's evidence of him making moves throughout the country shortly after these murders took place. He left his home in Nantes on April 10th, driving south near the French coast and down to a town called La Rochelle, which is about two hours away from his home. Somewhere along the way, he stopped for lunch and used his credit card to pay for the meal. Then he continued along his journey and stayed in a hotel for the night. The next day, he continued driving south and made stops in different towns until he got to Roquebrune d'Argen, which is on the eastern edge of the country, pretty close to Italy. At this point, Javier is almost 700 miles away from home, having gotten an 11-day head start on the police investigation. Now, the assumption by police is that Javier has killed his family and fled the scene, but all of the evidence is completely circumstantial. Police found no fingerprints in the Ligonese home. There was also no murder weapon, and there was no blood anywhere. No evidence was found that definitively tied Javier to the murders, and that holds true today. But there are important details about the string of events leading up to the deaths, and while it's circumstantial, this information is quite compelling. It starts with the financial data. Unbeknownst to most of his family and friends, Javier hadn't been finding success in his career for quite a while. Although he was regarded as a successful businessman, he was actually in significant debt. He had carried on for years keeping his circumstances under wraps, but it was only a matter of time before his cover would be blown. In addition to these financial woes, there were also relationship challenges between him and his wife. By this point, the two of them had been through a lot together. They started dating in the 80s, but broke up for a year so that Javier could travel. While he was gone, she had a brief relationship with another man and actually wound up pregnant. While most other men, especially noble men, would have moved on, Javier accepted the responsibility of raising a child and adopted Arthur, their oldest, as his own. Most would say that this was a selfless act demonstrative of Javier's undying love to Agnes. But did that love fade? It seems that Agnes was unhappy as time went on, as it got closer and closer to the fateful events in April of 2011. And this is evidenced by a comment that's attributed to her from an online forum, which reads, quote, I am lacking in everything. Tenderness, love, mutual friends, sex, everything. I have a husband who's very old-fashioned in his way of being in the family. The father is the head. He gives an order. We execute it without seeing to question or understand. Period. End quote. In January of 2011, a little less than four months before the family was brutally killed, Javier lost his father. He died alone in Versailles, where Javier was born, and Javier went to his dad's apartment to clean it out, and, of course, check in on the family finances. Coming from a wealthy family, one may assume that there was always a rainy day fund, a well of resources that could be tapped when someone was in need. But as it turned out, that well was quite dry. Javier found no trace of money in his father's home. But he did find something else. He found a gun, a twenty-two caliber rifle that he very quickly learned to shoot. On February 2nd, about two weeks after he first found the gun, Javier got his firearm license. A little less than a month later, on March 12th, he purchased a silencer, 
And at some point between the end of January and the beginning of April, Javier bought two unusual materials, considering he was a city man with no construction experience. He bought cement and quicklime, and it just so happens that both of these materials were found in the shallow graves of his wife, kids, and dogs. Based on the evidence of the crime scene, police surmise that after the sun went down on April 3rd and before it came up on April 4th, Javier had drugged his three children, Arthur, Anne, and Benoit, and shot them in the head while they slept. His wife, Agnes, already took medication for sleep apnea, so he didn't have to give her sleeping pills, but he shot her just the same. Then sometime the next day, he reached out to Tomas, telling him to come home from college because his mother had been in an accident. So naturally, Tomas came home. But his dad didn't take him to the hospital to see his mom. Instead, they stayed home. And his dad gave him the same sleeping pills that he gave the rest of his kids and shot him twice in the head. And by April 5th, he was dead. And two weeks later was found under the earth in the backyard with the rest of his family. By that time, by the time the family was found, Javier was missing, last seen on a CCTV camera near that small town of Roprun de Argen near Italy. In the final image ever captured of Javier, at least that we know of, he's seen walking toward the tall, canyon-like mountains of southeastern France, with a bag containing a long, skinny object similar to a rifle. Police spent two months searching the mountains for signs of their suspect, alive or dead, but they found nothing. So to this day, quite a few questions remain. What happened to Javier Dupont de Ligonnès? Did he, in fact, kill his family? And did he then kill himself from a guilty conscience? Or did he get away, flee the country, and start over? We may never know but we can look to astrology to try and find some clues. Javier Dupont de Ligonnès was born on January 9, 1961 at 11.15 a.m. in Versailles, France. He has a Capricorn sun, a Libra moon, and Pisces rising. It's important to note that Javier has a Capricorn stellium, not just a Capricorn sun. That means that he has additional planets in the sign that are combining their energies. His stellium contains Jupiter, the planet of expansion, which interacts with his sun to create a confident character. Then he has Saturn, the planet of responsibility, conjunct his sun and also conjunct to Mercury, the planet of communication. So Saturn here is interacting with the Jupiter-Sun conjunction to add a sense of responsibility to Javier's existence, to his mission. And Mercury here makes him a very structured thinker and planner. All of these 10th house Capricorn placements make Javier quite concerned with image, with the standardized family structure, and the idea that he should be the supporter of his family, because this is traditional. His Capricorn stellium hints that he strives to be a good businessman, although it could be the overconfidence from his Sun-Jupiter conjunction and his adventurous Sagittarius midheaven, which rules career, that caused him to falter in business. Javier's Libra moon made luxury very important to him and also gave him a balanced demeanor that his friends remember. 
His Pisces ascendant made him a visionary and makes Jupiter his traditional chart ruler, which adds to his confidence. But it also makes Neptune his chart ruler in modern astrology. And Neptune, the planet of illusion, delusion, and fantasy, is situated all alone in the mysterious 8th house, the house that describes circumstances of our intimate relationships with other people. But we'll get back to this detail later on. Even though all the circumstantial evidence points to yes, there's still a remaining question, did Javier kill his family? We can't really answer this question by just looking at the birth chart, but the birth chart can give us some clues. When examining the birth chart on its own, the question morphs from one of probability to one of potential. It becomes, did Javier have the potential to kill his family? And the answer, based on his astrology, is yes. And the main indicator of this for me is an exact conjunction between Pluto and the North Node in 7 degrees Virgo. The North Node is an indication of where you're headed in your lifetime. It's part of your mission, and it's always opposite the South Node, which is a representation of where you've been. If you believe in reincarnation, the South Node represents themes you've played out in your previous lives. For example, maybe you have the South Node in Aries, and that might mean that you were a warrior, maybe you were a gladiator in Roman times, and you've mastered that. You know what it's like to be a warrior. So now, in this lifetime, you have to focus on your North Node, on something new. You have to integrate the opposite energies of what you've already done. So that can be challenging because it's taking you out of your comfort zone. You're doing something completely new that you've never done before. And planets that are near your North Node can help you. They can give you an extra boost of energy to move you out of your comfort zone and into this new realm. In this circumstance, Javier's mission was inseparable from Plutonian themes. Pluto was one of the planets, or the planet really, that was pushing him into this new energy. As we know, Pluto is associated with death. And that's because its main purpose is to generate transformation. There are no greater forms of transformation than death and birth. And what causes death and rebirth? Power. The power of creation and destruction. Javier's mission was to harness these powers, harness the power of creation and destruction, and use them for personal transformation. But that type of power is very easy to misuse, especially when you're down on your luck and you're feeling powerless. Javier was a Capricorn. Capricorns are observers and creators of structure who value achievement and like to see the results of their efforts. They're very aware of what's expected of them in their roles in their various positions in life, and they generally like to meet or exceed those expectations. They don't like to fail. And here was Javier completely failing. Being a Capricorn with Pluto on the North Node, he absolutely was not okay with failure, but success was slipping through his fingers and that likely sent him into a frenzy. In that state, when we feel like everything is falling apart and we're terrified of the consequences, we beg for something to change so we can gain control again. Sometimes we don't know where the solution lies, we don't know how to gain that control. So we sit or curl up in a ball on our bathroom floor, in our sweatpants, and we cry. But that wasn't Javier's M.O. He was pulled toward power. It was handed to him through Pluto on his north node, and he was looking toward it for help. 
With power like this, Javier was not short of options for gaining control. He was capable of so much force, and at this point was faced with a choice around how to use that force. The waters were murky here. It would make sense that Javier lost his line of sight during his dive and wielded his power to destroy. When we add transits to Javier's birth chart, we get some added perspective on whether he was involved in his family's deaths. On the day of the first four murders, there was a gigantic lineup of planets in Aries, the sign of the warrior, the fighter. Aries can be violent. Lilith, Uranus, and Mars were all in one degree Aries. This was followed by the Sun, Jupiter, the Moon, and Mercury, situated between 13 degrees and 23 degrees of the sign. All of these planets were in Javier's first house, the house of identity, of personality, of new beginnings. If Javier was not responsible for these crimes, I would have expected to see this lineup in a different area of his chart. But these planets are here, in the house of his identity, right in the section of the chart that's all about him and who he's becoming. Not only are they in the first house, but these planets are also making very important aspects to other areas of the chart. The planets in one degree Aries, Lilith, the point of rebellion, Uranus, the planet of revolution, and Mars, the planet of self-assertion, are all square to Javier's natal Mars, which just happens to be in the fourth house of family. This aspect hints that there's going to be a rebellious and taboo burst of violence that appears sudden from the outside and totally shakes Javier's home life. The other planets in Aries, the Sun, Jupiter, the Moon, and Mercury, are all square to that natal stellium that Javier has. His Sun, Saturn, Mercury, and Jupiter. Simplifying this quite a bit, we can say that these first house placements, who he wants to be, are at odds with this 10th house stellium of who he is in his family and his career, how he fits into the structure. There's a big tension here, and one side is going to win out over the other. It seems that the side of who he wants to be won out over his ethical obligations to his family. The last and biggest question of this case is, of course, what happened to Javier? Where did he go? Did he kill himself, or did he escape under the radar? Looking at the evidence, it's very easy to assume that he escaped. For one, he put so much effort into planning his murders and keeping the scene meticulously clean that one would wonder, why go through all the effort just to kill yourself later? But it's important to remember that Javier's image was very important to him. He didn't want to tarnish his reputation, which is presumably why he killed his family in the first place. Maybe he went through all the trouble of planning and cleaning to give himself the time to kill himself very far away where he could be hidden and the chance existed that no one would ever know what he'd done. But what does astrology tell us? Javier left his home in Nantes for good on April 10th, 2011. On that exact date, transiting Pluto turned retrograde, and it was transiting opposite Javier's natal Mars. Pluto is a force of death and destruction, and Mars is a warrior. They both hold a fiery energy. And they're playing off of each other in this transit, creating a violent force that could, in the most twisted of situations, be used to say, kill your family. 
Pluto turning retrograde here shifts the narrative from outward-focused violence to a kind of internal combustion, because retrogrades implore us to direct our energy inward. The fact that Pluto went retrograde on the day Javier left Nantes could indicate that the external portion of his deed was done, and his destruction was ready to move inward. Looking at this circumstance alone, we could draw the conclusion that Javier killed himself. But especially given that he is Aries in his first house of identity, and Mars rules Aries, this could also symbolize the death of his identity in a violent way to make way for the start of a new one. There are other forces to look at in this case, aside from Pluto and Mars. And this is where Neptune comes back into the picture. Javier has a Pisces ascendant, and a signature stereotype of Pisces is escapism. When Pisces doesn't want to face what life is throwing its way, Pisces flees, preferring to live in a fantasy world where things are much more shiny and attractive and pleasant. The ruler of Pisces is Neptune, and Neptune is in Scorpio in Javier's chart. Because he has a Pisces ascendant, and because Neptune rules Pisces, Neptune holds a lot of weight in his chart. Here we see the interaction of death and escapism with Neptune in the 8th, in Scorpio, which is ruled by Pluto. We could argue that in some way, death is a means to change his circumstances so that he can literally escape and start fresh. The day after he murdered his family, transiting Neptune moved into Pisces in Javier's 12th house, the house of all things hidden. It cloaked him in a fog of mystery, and in a sense dissolved him into oblivion. But I'm not satisfied with this mystery, so I used one more method to try and get down to the answer of what happened to Javier. I calculated a solar return chart for his 50th birthday, which happened about four months to the day before he left town. In that solar return chart, Venus, the planet of values and comfort and stability, is in Sagittarius in the 8th house. Sagittarius is an adventurer, an explorer, a traveler, and Venus here indicates that traveling would be linked to stability. Now, he has Sagittarius on his midheaven, which just means in general, adventure and travel is a big part of his life. He also has it in the ninth house, so that's how he expands into the world. In the solar return chart, Venus in Sagittarius in the eighth house demonstrates that he's going to be traveling under a cloak of mystery, which comes from the 8th house, and that will lead him to expanding into a new scene, creating new values in a new culture, and the placement of Venus in the transits just after the murders is consistent with starting fresh. On April 14th, 2011, in the transits, Venus moved into Javier's first house, which to me is tied to the creation of a new life gaining ground in a new identity, creating new values and a new stability. On April 23rd, Venus met with Uranus in Javier's first house, generating a radical shift in the factors bringing him stability, as well as in his identity, the first house being about identity and Uranus creating revolution and switching things up. It could be that he left the country on April 14th, he moved out of France, and then he was traveling for about a week until on the 23rd he wound up at his final destination and began living his new life as somebody else. Of course, these are just my interpretations of his astrology and what I know about the case. You can form your own conclusions.
What do you think happened to Javier? I'll let you think about it for about a week before I'm back next week with another new episode. I hope you enjoyed this one, and if you did, please don't forget to leave a rating and tell your friends about the show. I'll be back next week with another episode of Killer Astrology. Until then, remember, people may lie, but the stars never do. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and follow the podcast on social media, the information for which you will find in the episode description. Visit my website, killerastrologypodcast.com, for reference information for this episode. Schedule your own astrology reading with me by visiting killerastrologypodcast.com slash services.